How we doing, Liberty? It is Wednesday night. Coming to you live from the underground bunker under Pastor Matt's office that nobody knows about. Tucked away in here. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for all the hellos. I sure do appreciate that. Glad you're with me. If you got a second, while we wait for everybody to get on here, grab your Bible. Now we're going to be in the book of Judges. And uh, so I'm excited about part two. Now, I counted out the Wednesdays. I think we got five Wednesdays total. And so this is uh, the second one. And so, of course, we won't be able to get into the book of Judges in great detail because I only have five Wednesdays. But we definitely can make some progress. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've been encouraged. Pastor Matt's been out of town, and I have been busy, busy, busy trying to get some things done uh, so that I'll show some progress while he's gone. And uh, Sunday was a, was an incredible day. The Lord really helped us. Now, if you're in the 9 o'clock service, man, you just don't know all the stuff that was going on. My microphone wouldn't work right. It wouldn't stay on my ear. My iPad locked up. Could not get my thoughts in gear. Oh, I just felt like I struggled in the 9 a.m. service, and I just sat down and talked to the Lord about it, and then he helped us more in the 11, encouraged our hearts again. So if you're in the 9 o'clock service, I apologize. It's got to get better than that. And uh, But 11 o'clock, he helped us a lot. So if you got your Bible... And uh, you are in the book of Judges. Let's see what time we got here. We are dead on 7 o'clock. We're ready to start. I don't want to waste your time. And uh, I thank you for joining me. And hopefully we'll learn from the book of Judges the things that God has for us. Now I would remind you that our theme kind of for the book of Judges is the God who overcomes human failure. The tagline that I used is, 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 is failing humans and a faithful God. And uh, those are the things that we find in the book of Judges. Judges gives us the defeat swallowed up in victory. Man's defeat, God's victory. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can find great correlation between my own life and those things. And uh, so let me remind you that Judges comes in the canon of Scripture after the book of Joshua. I know that's a deep truth for you that Joshua judges and Ruth. But the reason why that's important, and I'm turning there to Judges right now, is because both of these books are referred to as victory books. Ruth is included as well. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth are the victory books. But Joshua gives us the positive side of victory, and Judges gives us the negative side of victory. And to be candid with you, you never really know a truth unless you have experienced it positively and negatively. You know, when the Lord has helped me in something, the reason why it means so much to me and while my heart is encouraged when he helps me, I got a hair sticking up here, while my heart is encouraged when he helps me is because I know the times when I have done things in my own strength. I've experienced the negativity of human failure. And so when I have divine assistance, man, it means so much to me. And so experiencing something in the negative and the positive makes you a true understander of the truth. And uh, I believe that if you've lived any time in life, you know that's to be true in your own experience. It's kind of like Joshua gives us victory in the major key, musically speaking, and Judges gives us victory in the minor key. And if you ever read in the book of Psalms, there are Psalms that are written in the major key. Hey, if you're encouraged and you want to shout to the Lord, you can find it in the book of Psalms. But if you are discouraged, your life's in the minor key. You can find that in the book of Psalms as well. Good evening to everybody who's telling me hello. Thank you so much, Cassidy. I see you. And uh, Miss Amelia, I see you. Thank you. Stephen, Judy Montgomery, glad all of y'all. Hey, Miss Faye. 
Uh, hello, Tammy. I'm glad all of y'all are here and speaking to me. Thank you so much for that. It means a whole lot to me. It's much easier to talk to a screen when I see some people are watching me. And so I would just remind you that you can find minor key and major keys in the Psalms, and that is true in our life experiences. So Joshua gives us the victory that Christ can give us in the major key. But Judges gives it to us in the minor key, and both are true to fully experience the truth. It's, it's true that Joshua gives us the high water mark of the spiritual condition of the children of Israel. When they're marching into the promised land, walls falling down at Jericho, just taking possession of the land that God gave them. Man, that is the high water mark of their spiritual revival. I mean, it is, it is the peak uh, of the zenith of, of their spiritual development. And Judges is the low water mark. And how fast can you go from the high to the low? Evidently pretty fast because the chaos that's listed in Judges chapter 17 through 21 doesn't happen at the end of the book. Remember I told you this last week. It happens at the beginning. It's added as an addendum so that we can understand the spiritual condition and how quickly can we fall. And one of the reasons why I think the children of Israel struggled the same reason you and I struggle is because it's easy to rest in what God has done for us and what we have done for God in our past. And when we enter into that kind of resting on our laurel stage, kind of a passiveness in our spiritual life, just remember, we're not static Christians. We're either moving forward or, or, or we're backing up. It's hard to hold that middle ground, and I would just encourage you to, to make sure that you're not resting in your past victories. You know, when people ask you what God has done for your, in your life lately, do you have anything to tell them? Is it always something that happened to you 10 years ago, 5 years ago? When was your last time you saw God really move on your behalf? do something unexpected, change your life. It's been a long time. Check and see. Make sure you're not just resting in what he has done because he wants to currently do, do it for you. And if you find yourself in the minor key of defeat, you find yourself living in the book of Judges, don't trust a past revival to get you out. Trust the living Christ who is our high priest and fights our battles for us. Ask him to get you out. So I want to look at some lessons that we find in the book of Judges in their deliverances. And remember, Judges is referred to a group of people. These were individuals that God called out, men and women, who delivered the children of Israel. And you got to consider the fact that because the children of Israel were scattered out over land, they had been marching together as a group of, a, you know, two million people. But now they get in this land, they're all scattered out. And so these Judges are operating at different times, and they are localized. They're not necessarily a national deliverance. It's more of a local deliverance. And so I, I looked at some of these things, and I want to give you some lessons from these deliverers and the deliverances that God brings into the land. And some of these, when I was studying this week, <laughs> just so encouraged my heart. And I'll just be honest with you, and uh, you'll see why as we get into it. And you might not get anything out of it. Here I am crying again. I'm crying because I miss Pastor Matt so bad, and I just can't hardly get along without him. But... uh when you hear these things, maybe they'll help you as well. The first lesson that I see in the book of Judges is that God uses weak things to bring about his deliverances. He uses weak things. And I'm going to give you some of these weak things in these Judges. I think I've got about, let's see, several of them I want to give to you. Maybe five or six of them. And uh, these Judges, my notes here in order to help me out a whole lot. Some weak things from these judges. I'm missing a paper. There we go. All right, we're ready now. All right, so these weak things 
that he used these judges to accomplish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, this is the passage of Scripture where Paul prays, and uh, he says that God has given him a thorn in the flesh. And that thorn in the flesh, he asked God three times to take it away, and God said no. And that word three times is a Hebrew idiom. It, it simply means that he repeatedly asked God to take it away. And every time God said, no, I'm not taking it away, I'm not taking it away. And God said, because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul learned this lesson, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because my weakness forces me to rely on, on God, And I have found that when my confidence lies in my natural ability or my preparation or my familiarity with the text and I'm not trusting in the Lord, I don't, I, don't find his, I don't find his strength to be as readily available to help me. But when I am weak, when I realize my own inability and cast myself on him, oh, then I find him to be all sufficient for me. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. If you got your Bible, I really want you to look this up because it encouraged my heart. In Sunday school, if you're not in the rooted Facebook group, you need to get in it so you can join us in 1 Corinthians on Sundays. You can watch any time during the week. Take out every opportunity to grow. The Sunday school teacher is phenomenal. Um, one of the best guys I know all around. Just teasing a little bit. I'm teaching it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, God is talking about how God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise, the foolishness of God. And in verse 25, he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here's what God is saying. He said, take the strongest thing that a man has and the weakness of God is greater than the strongest man. And here's the blessing. God doesn't promise us his weakness. It's, that's just a figurative expression. God has no weakness. He doesn't promise us his weakness. He promises us his strength. And if his weakness is greater than the strongest thing man can offer. What must his strength be? What must his strength be? And God said, I'm not looking for the gifted and the talented and the able. I am looking for people who are just available and faithful. I'm looking for the weak and despised and the foolish. I'm looking for the short. I'm looking for those people who lack. I'm looking for those people so I can show myself strong through them so that my strength will be magnified in their weakness. And the weakness of God is greater than the strength of man. And we're going to see that in the book of Judges. Now, I'm going to go through some Judges, and if you've not read the book of Judges, you need to read it, all right? And I'm going to go through these. I can't read all this to you, but you can read it. In chapter 3, verse 15, we meet a judge named Ehud, all right? Ehud is known as the left-handed judge. And when he goes to speak to the king, he straps a dagger under his right side, underneath his garment. Of course, they check his left side because a right-handed man would pull across his body to pull a sword. And because they didn't check his left side, he went in there. You can read, it's really graphic. I'm a guy, and I used to love reading the book of Judges because of the graphics. The Bible says that he stabbed the king in the belly and the guts came out and the fat of the king closed around the shaft of the, of the dagger. And it's just, it's just really graphic. And so, but I, what I want you to get out of this is that the Bible says that he was a left-handed judge. Now, today, that's no stigma whatsoever. And in those days, I don't think it would have been any stigma either. But if we read a little bit deeper and do some study, we grasp this, that the word in the Hebrew literally means he is weak as to his right hand. In other words, Ehud was not naturally left-handed. He was forced to be left-handed due to some injury or something happened. He was naturally handicapped. And his natural handicap 
It's what allowed God to use him to kill the king who was oppressing the children of Israel. And let me just be careful. I can say this. I, handicaps can be a great blessing if they're given to the Lord for his use. They can be. They can be. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Ehud was a left-handed judge, and God used it to accomplish his purpose. Shamgar, the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 31, that he killed 600 men with an ox goad. And what is an ox goad? Is it a pointy stick that they goad the ox with? That's what some people think. Some people disagree with it. But either way, whatever it was, it was not a normal weapon of war. Now, if it had said he killed six men with an ox goad, I'd have been impressed. If it said he killed 60 men with an ox goad, I'd have been blown away. But the Bible says he killed 600 men with an ox goad. Now, I don't know how long it takes to kill 600 men. Not really attempted that. Not on my bucket list. Uh, but Shamgar, in defense of his homeland, killed 600 men. One guy against 600, what did they do? Wait in line to fight him? I mean, after a while, after he'd done killed six or seven or eight of us, I, we'd all ganged up on him. But God just gave him a great victory because God likes to use despised and weak and broken things to confound the wisdom and power of man. And Shamgar had an ox goat, and God took that ox goat and killed 600 of the enemy. And then in chapter 4 of Judges, we find Deborah. And of course, uh, in our hypersensitive culture in which we live, sometimes we forget that positions in society have not always been the way they are now. And in the culture back in those days, for a woman to be a judge and a general of the army, the Bible calls her a prophetess, that would be considered something that would be weak or despised. And the Bible does call her the weaker vessel, but she did things that male judges could not do. In fact, uh, Barak was the judge, or supposed to be, and he was weak, and Deborah said, I'll go fight with you, and they went and fought, and God gave them a great victory. And when you read Hebrews chapter 11, there she is. And so maybe it's not that God always usually uses women in this regard but he certainly did in this capacity so be careful that you don't say that you don't say that he can't use them she was a prophetess a judge and a general god used her in a mighty way and god can still do those very same things today all right and then we get to gideon now we are very familiar with the story of gideon and gideon's 300 in the book of judges chapter 7 and 8 and remember God finds Gideon, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. He's threshing wheat. He's hiding it from the Midianites. And the angel shows up and says, Hail Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And he goes, who are you talking to? He said, the tribe I'm in, the tribe of Manasseh, is the smallest tribe in Israel. And my family is the smallest, the least in my tribe. And I'm the least in my family. He said, I'm at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. That's what he says. And you call me a mighty man of valor? God said, I want to use you. And so remember that Gideon got, tried to get some people together and he was concerned. And he said, okay, God, if you really want me to go fight, I'm going to lay this, this piece of wool out on the ground. And in the morning, if you really want me to go do this, let the wool be wet and the ground be dry because I'm just not sure. The next morning he gets up, the Bible says he can wring a cup of water out of the wool. And he's still struggling in his faith, just like me and you do, just like me and you. And he says, okay, God, one more time, one more time. Make the ground soaking wet and the fleece dry. And the next morning, it came out just like that. And so 
Gideon sent out the word, call all the men to come together. We're going to fight against the Midianites. You know how many Midianites there were? We know from our study there were 135,000 Midianites. And Gideon gathered an army of 32,000 men. Now, 32,000 might seem a lot if you're going against an army of 40,000. But 135,000 men is an incredible thing. In fact, 32,000 to 135,000 is roughly a 4 to 1 ratio. Still pretty bad odds. And God looked down at this army of 32,000 and he said, Gideon, you have way too many people. Tell all of those who are afraid to go home. Yeah, 22,000 pack up and go home. And I'll just be honest with you. If we're going up against 135,000, Dusty's probably in the first group headed home. Call me what you want to. I don't care. I'm going home. So Gideon now has the 10,000. And God looked at that and said, way too many. He said, take them down to the water, let them drink. And the Bible says 300 of them scooped the water up. The other 9,700 put their face down in the water and drank like a dog. And God said, set the 300 over one side. That's my group. Do you know what 300 is to 135,000? It is 450 to 1 odds. 450 to 1 odds. Let me ask you something. Do you want to fight a fight where the odds are 450 to 1 against you losing? Absolutely not. But the weakness of God is stronger than men. And God said, I want to illustrate that I am looking for the despised, weak, and broken things of this world. And so, Gideon, I want you to take your 300, and I want you to surround the Midianites. And I just want you to know that in the first part of the battle, Gideon and his men didn't even have to fight. All they had to do was stand on the hillside and blow the trumpet. And as the light shone all around them, the Midianites began to kill one another. And God worked like that. And God loves to work like that because he gets all the glory. You ever been facing something that has great odds against you? Yeah. Meet Gideon. Have you ever prayed about those odds? And instead of things getting better, they got worse? Meet Gideon. 32,000. 10,000, 300, impossible. But understand that when God takes you from a place of difficulty to a place of greater difficulty, he's just setting the stage to show what he can do. And it should encourage our hearts because the weakness of God is stronger than men and God swallows up our defeat with his victory and he loves to do it. When it looks like that, Every hope is lost, and there's nowhere left to turn. Everything's ruined. That's when God likes to step in. And the book of Judges illustrates this fact through the life of Gideon and Deborah and Shamgar and Ehud. All right? Here's another one. Think about the truth of Jephthah in chapter 11, Judges chapter 11. Now, pardon my language. I'm just going to be playing with you. All right? The Bible says that Jephthah was a bastard. He was the illegitimate child of a prostitute. Now, Ehud, he had a physical handicap. Jephthah had a moral or social handicap. 
because there is the scripture that I write it down. Deuteronomy 23 says that a bastard cannot enter the congregation of the Lord for 10 generations trying to maintain the purity of the nation of Israel for the line of Jesus Christ. Of course, if a bastard got right with God and uh, lived a pure life, then certainly he can be accepted. There's all kinds of things, exceptions to that. But I just want you to understand that he struggled underneath that social stigma of being a, a bastard. And yet he yielded to God and God gave him a great victory. Great victory. He overcame a social handicap. Ehud overcame a physical handicap. What is your handicap? What is it that you're not good at? My handicap, I don't necessarily mean a deformity. But do you ever thank God for the way he made you? Just thank him. Yeah. As I was studying this, I, I thank God that he made me five foot five. I get picked on all my life. I have been picked on all my life about my height. Yep. And then, you know, I work with a guy who's like 6'6", six, six, which magnifies the fact that I'm only 5'5". Five five. You don't really think about it so much until we stand next to each other. And uh, I've heard all the short jokes. In fact, when I preach sometimes to kids, I tell them, if they can tell me a short joke I've never heard, I give them $5. Because I've heard them all. And uh, people like picking on me, and most of the time I try to preempt their picking uh, with self-deprecating humor because I don't care anymore. I'm 50 years old. I am what I am. Here I am. But have I ever stopped and thank God for making me just like he made me? So that my weakness, my handicap, so to speak, becomes an area of his strength and honor and his glory? What is it that you struggle with? What do you? What, what, what's your problem? Because we all got one. You ever thank God for it? You ever wished you were beautiful? God didn't make you beautiful. He made you just like you are. Maybe you're beautiful to him, beautiful to your spouse. Maybe you're not beautiful to yourself. Instead of grumbling and complaining about that, thank God for the way he made you. Some people say, I got a big nose. I got big ears. I got big teeth. Oh, I hate this. But no, Don't hate it. God made you like that. He made you on purpose just like that. And those things teach you not to put confidence in yourself. Those things teach you to put your trust in him. And do those things that bring honor and glory to him so that when people look at you, they don't see you, but the glory of God. And so instead of going through life considering things to be unfair or the deck stacked against you because you don't meet some social standard of height or intelligence or beauty, just remember, God made you just like he made you. And also remember this, when you pick or criticize something, you're criticizing the work of God. Yeah. So keep picking on me for being short. Yeah. You're picking on what God did. I'll let him deal with you. Oh, yeah. Come on. Get you some of that. I'm just teasing a little bit. Pick on me all you want to. All right. So that was Jephthah. He suffered from that, from that social handicap. And if you find yourself then in those places, thank God for you. And Michelle Heinrich, try to love your nose. Amen. We all got something. We all got something. And uh, God made us just like that for his honor and for his glory. And, you know, sometimes I think about it. Uh, if I was taller or if I had some other gifts, maybe those things would have been a hindrance to me. Kept me from serving God. Kept me from doing right. And so God needed to keep his hand on me. I, I do know this. I can say this. There's nobody in this room but me. Y'all are watching me. But 
you're not really talking to me except typing. But I know one reason why God made me short, because I have a tendency to just to be arrogant. I do. I, I know I do. And, uh, and I don't, if I can sense it, then I know it must be way worse because nobody ever sees their flaws in the reality of what they are. And so if you see me walking around being arrogant, it's just, that's part of my personality. I come from a long line of arrogant men and, uh, and sharp-tongued. I mean, when my family gets together, my goodness, it's just rough. You better have some thick skin because they lay it on. It is rough. Uh, the bracket men, and you maybe come from a family like that. And so I think one of the reasons why God made me five foot five was to keep me at least a little bit humble, just a modicum of humility in my life is why he did that. So I don't know, but thank God for how whatever he gave you, whatever handicap you have, that's from him. It's a blessing, and he takes care of us and puts us in these situations because he desires to do something through us. All right, And then the sixth judge is... Samson. I said, Brother Dusty, you said God uses weak and despised things. How did he use Samson? Well, Samson killed a thousand Philistines by himself. You know, with, he didn't have an army of 300 like Gideon had. He killed him by himself. Multiple times he did those things. And when we think about Samson, we always have this picture of this, this hulk of a man. No, no, no. Natural-looking guy. That's why they could not figure the source of his strength. Had he been muscle-bound and ripped and cut and everything, nobody would have marveled at what his strength was. But when the Philistines came to Delilah, they said, see if you can discover the secret of his strength. In other words, he was a normal-looking guy, probably five foot five, 155 pounds, perfect specimen of manhood. Yeah, he's that guy, and they can't figure out how he's so strong. So strong. Why? Because God likes to use weak and despise things. And Samson fit that, and God used him in a great way. And so um, the writer of Judges, I'm not positive who that is, but whoever it was put God at the center of everything and shows us that God won the war. Israel didn't win the war. It's a great to remember Isaiah 2.22. It says, See she from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherewith is he to be accounted of? And I just would remind you about yourself and about your enemies. God looks at us and he just says, Away with man. Is man to be accounted of anything? Man is nothing, right? Whether it's Trump in the White House, Putin or whoever around the world, they are nothing, nothing before the throne of Almighty God, and neither are you and I. And God is looking for weak and despised things, and his weakness is greater than the strength of men. Have I said that enough? You get that tonight, that his weakness is greater than the strength of men, and he doesn't operate in his weakness. He has none. He operates with us in his strength, and because of that, he can do things through us that we would never be able to do ourselves, and these judges prove that point. All right, that's point number one, all right? Those examples that I gave you, six examples that God likes to use weak and despise things. The second truth I learned from the book of Judges is this, is that God uses imperfect instruments. And I mean imperfect by imperfect men. You ever read the story of Samson? What would you do if Samson was your pastor? Where's our pastor? Well, he went down to see a harlot in Timnath last night and he's not back yet. Yeah, that, that's the kind of man Samson was. He told his parents, this girl pleases me well. Get her. She's a Philistine. You're not supposed to be marrying Philistines. 
I want her. And he goes into one town and spends a night at a harlot's house and Philistines come and lock him in and he picks up the gate, carries it some, I think it's estimated nearly 20 miles to the top of a mountain and sits down on the gate and waits for the Philistines to come and attack him, an imperfect man. Let me be careful. A lot of times we say, if I have sin in my life, God won't use me. Not so, not so. Your sin may limit his ability to use you to your fullest, but God certainly uses men with sin in their life. He certainly does. Samson is a great picture of that. And I've known preachers who preach with the power of God on them, and then I found out later they were having an affair. All right? God sometimes honors his word above the individual. And so don't think that he cannot use someone just because there's sin in their life. If that's the case, he wouldn't use anybody. Our sin limits his ability to use us to the fullest. But God deals with us where we are to bring us to where we need to be. If he waited for us to get to where we needed to be before he would use us, he would never use us because we're all struggling. But he works in our life to get us from where we're at, to bring us to where we need to be. Psalm 138.8 is a great verse. It says, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. He'll perfect it. He's working in us where we are to get us to where we need to be. One of my life verses one time, Psalm, 18, Psalm 18, it says, As for the Lord, his way is perfect. And then two verses later it says, And he makes my way perfect. And the perfection there is the maturity, the completeness that God brings into our lives and ultimately the sinlessness that we get when we get to heaven. If you look at the five major judges in the book of Judges, Othniel, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, there is a spiritual declension as the book progresses until we get down to Samson being the least spiritual of them all. And understand, though, that God still uses imperfect people, and I am so very thankful that he does so, because otherwise none of us would be used at all. But he works with what he, find, what he brings, and he works with us where we are to bring us to where we need to be, and that is the most encouraging thing. And uh, it is true that God uses imperfect people. And wherever you've been, whatever your history, your past, realize that God can take those things and then swallow up your defeat in his victory. Show himself strong on your behalf and do things that you never thought that he could do. God could do it. And the fact that I'm sitting here on the other side of this screen talking to you is evidence that God uses imperfect men. And if you want to know about my faults and failures, some of you know part of my life anyway. And if you want to know, stop by sometime. I'd be glad to tell you, hey, God gets all the glory for everything that he does for all of us. And if you're a broken person, you're in my group because I'm a broken man and... I just thank the Lord for his faithfulness, that he would use me at all. And then I get to teach. And t I'm just thankful. All glory to the Lord. All right? Number three. First of all, God uses weak things. God uses imperfect people. And then God uses the heathen to accomplish his purposes. This is a good lesson for us to understand. God uses the heathen to accomplish his purposes. He got these foreign nations to come in and oppress the children of Israel and use that oppression to drive the children of Israel back to himself. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, calls Assyria the rod of God's anger. Now, you know, Assyria was the nation that led the northern people, the northern nation of Israel, 
into captivity. And Babylon led the southern kingdom, Judah, into captivity roughly 150 years later. But the northern kingdom was led away by Assyria. But Isaiah 10 verses 5 through 7 reminds us that Assyria did it unintentionally. They brought Israel back to God or Judah back to God, working in these things. The unsaved don't know, the heathen don't realize that they're serving God and accomplishing his purposes. But God can use them to do so unintentionally, unintentionally. Sometimes when I think about what's going on in foreign lands, the false religions of the world, sometimes I pray and want God to use those false religions to unintentionally accomplish his purposes because God rules and he overrules. And so I've even prayed before for God to allow Satan to overstep himself because Satan's arrogant. He's an arrogant devil. Pride was what caused him to fall. He always overestimates things. He thinks he could kill Jesus and keep him in the grave, and he couldn't do it, and he still overestimates things. And I pray that God will use his rebellion to carry out God's plan, even when he doesn't mean to. Has there ever been a time when God used some unsaved individual to accomplish his purpose in your life? Yeah, some event that happened, somebody did you wrong, and through that process, it brought you back to repentance and righteousness with God. Yeah, if that's the case, it's just the proof that God uses humans to accomplish his purposes. And then number, number four, God uses calamity to purify his people. Now, remember the cycle. God brings his people into the land, they begin to worship other gods. God brings this oppression upon them. They repent. God brings a judge, and then there's deliverance. And then the cycle starts over again, over and over again in your life. You see this. You see the rebellion against God, the punishment, retributive, not, not punitive. He brings that in the remedial, brings that in their life. They repent. God gives them a judge. He delivers them. The land has rest for so many years, and they go back into that. Over and over, the cycle goes. I'm not too hard on the nation of Israel because I've seen that happen over and over in my life as well. God brings, I, I get away from God. He brings difficulty in my life. I repent, draws me back to him. I experience his blessing. Then I get kind of satisfied, float along, and before long, I'm back in the cycle again. And God uses that calamity to purify. Isaiah 26, verses 9 and 10. You should look this up. It says, when God's judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants learn righteousness. Now, they always say you can remember where you were on specific dates. You remember where you were on September the 11th? The planes flew into the tower. I was preaching at a Christian school in Columbia, South Carolina, Grace Christian School. I was preaching chapel that day, and someone told me that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center, and I didn't think anything about it. I kept preaching and then found out much more about it later. But you remember the response, the spiritual response of our nation after that happened? Churches packed with people. Why? Because God's judgments, God's judgments in the earth bring the inhabitants to righteousness. Remember when Katrina came through, people responded to the Lord in these things. And often that is the case. And God does that for us. And you can look how God will bring that calamity in the lives of the children of Israel in the book of Judges. They get right with God. And the Bible says the land had rest for 40 years. In other words, 40 years of peace and no war. You say, man, how wonderful is that? They enjoyed 40 years of God's blessing. It is wonderful. But oh, how dangerous that is too. 
how dangerous that is too because oftentimes outward prosperity leads to inward decay. Be honest with me. What are the times where you felt you were closest to the Lord and you felt you developed as a Christian? I promise you it wasn't in times of great blessing. It was probably in times of great difficulty and hardship. And that hardship drove you to the Lord. And because it drove you to the Lord, your faith increased and you grew. I'm going to be preaching about that on Sunday and Lazarus and his death and Jesus and the disciples going there and about the faith that he wants to see them grow. I hope you don't miss that. But the truth of it is, is that we respond best spiritually when we are faced with hardship and difficulty. It's just the way we are. We would love our life to be perfect. But one of the worst things that God can do for you sometimes is to let everything go smoothly. Can I say that again? Sometimes the worst thing that God can do for you is to let everything go smoothly. Because if everything went smoothly all the time, how quickly would you forget his goodness and grace to you? How quickly would you run from him and do your own thing? How quickly would you get away from serving him? No, we, we, we need the valley. We need the difficulty. We need the calamity in our life because the calamity drives us to Jesus Christ. And we should get to the place where we are thankful for what he does in our hearts and lives. Personally, I don't get all into it, we've been going through some unsettling things. And I asked God, God, what, what are you doing? You know what he said to me? He said, I'm loving on you. I'm loving on you. I'm bringing these things in your life to draw you up to myself, to get you close. Because you done got out there a little bit, enjoying prosperity, uninterrupted days of blessings. So I let it rain a little bit, just a little bit, pull you back to myself. And understand that when I don't let things go smooth, it's not because I don't care about you. It's because I miss you. And I care about you more than you understand. And I want to bring you back to myself so we can experience that closeness again, so I can put you in a position to give you more blessing. That's it. Calamity purifies us. And you know, I want everything in our nation to prosper for my children's sake, my grandchildren's sake. But if you want to see a real revival in our nation, it's going to take some calamity, probably. You see, revival in our churches might take some calamity. Calamity is not bad if it drives us to Jesus. Nothing that drives you to Jesus is ultimately a bad thing. If it makes you run to him, it is a good thing. It is a blessing. And sometimes God's got to lay you on your back in a hospital, and it's a good thing because it gets your attention. Sometimes God's got to wrap a car around a tree, and it's a good thing. Sometimes God's got to take things away from you to get your attention, and it's a good thing. And you learn to grow and mature in your faith to get to the place where Job says, Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I know he's right. That's what God's looking for. Calamity causes purity in our life. And if we have uninterrupted prosperity, it always leads to spiritual decay. Always leads. Sometimes when I'm being stupid, sit around and dream of what I would do if I was had a hundred million dollars. Well, first of all, Liberty, we would build a new building. I always say, I, you know, we'd be pouring ground on a new auditorium immediately if I had a hundred million dollars. There's a good reason why God didn't give me a hundred million dollars. In reality, if Dusty got a hundred million dollars, 
Y'all be saying, where's Pastor Dusty? Nobody knows because he's gone, right? Because I know my own wicked heart. Gone. God's got to keep me right here, right here. Because of his goodness to me. I'm thankful he keeps those things from me. All right? And then the fifth truth. I only got six of them. All right. The fifth truth. Spiritual decline always leads to economic decline. Did you hear that? Spiritual decline leads to economic decline. Spiritual revival always leads to economic revival. Those two things are tied together. Right? Say, Brother Dusty, I don't see that. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Can I just be real plain? Real plain. I believe that we have a social responsibility to help those that are in need as a church and individually. I do. Within certain limitations. Because according to Matthew 6.33, if your basic human needs are not being met, it's because you're not seeking first the kingdom of God. And those basic human needs, according to that passage, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Where are we going to live? These kinds of things, all right? I'm not saying that you have to have just prosperity of all of these temporal, material blessings necessarily. But if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, he has promised himself that he will take care of your physical needs of what will you eat, what will you drink, and how will you be clothed. And so if those things are not being met in your life, analyze where you're at and begin to seek first the kingdom of God. Here's a problem we have at Liberty. We have some benevolence that we give to people who are displaced from their homes and need a motel room for the night. They don't have any groceries. We give food to them. I believe it's our responsibility to show the love of Christ. But if the same person ask us 15 times in a year, then we begin to say, there's a greater problem here. Because if you expect the church to pay your power bill, and people call all the time for that, then in retribution, you should come to church, right? It's not fair to expect the church to pay your power bill if you never go to church. You just want to call on God to get help when you need it, but you don't want to do your part. You don't want to seek first the kingdom of God, but you demand that the kingdom of God pays your power bill. That's not fair. That's not fair. And we'll help anybody who has a need. But if you always have a need, if you're always struggling in the basic things, talking about the basic things, eating, drinking, living somewhere, if you always have this struggle, make sure you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Where does the war on poverty begin? The war on poverty does not begin. We're just handing piles of money to people in poverty. The war on poverty really begins by teaching them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because God has obligated himself to take care of us if we'll do those things. He's obligated himself. Now, most of the people I'm talking to are not currently struggling with what we'll eat or what we'll drink, but maybe there's been a time in your life where you have in the past. And I'll just remind you, the spiritual revival and economic revival go together. That doesn't mean that just because you're having a difficult financial time that you're not living right. That's not what I mean at all. It's one of the basic things, basic things, that the general tenor of a man's life ought to be that if he seeks God, God takes care of him and his basic human needs. That's what God promises us. And so I get aggravated a little bit sometimes because as a nation, we feed half the world. 
But in reality, what some of those individuals need in other countries is for that country to seek God. Now, our country's getting so wicked and so vile that we're going to see some economic downturn because those things go together. We are not seeking the kingdom of God. But can I flip the coin on you just a little bit? Don't look at the man who is in need of physical aid and blow him off because he needs to seek the kingdom of God. That man sitting on the side of the road with a sign, don't allow his failure to seek the kingdom of God to deliver you from doing your civic, social, and spiritual responsibility to help him. Because the Bible says, give to him that ask of you. So, Brother Dusty, how do you know he's not going to use it for drugs? I don't know that. It's not my responsibility to judge how he uses it. My responsibility is to obey. And if he's asking me and I got it, I ought to give it. You can't ever lose by giving. You never lose by giving. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. You want God to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you cannot receive? Give. Give. And I'm talking to all of you stingy people. Stingy people. Piling up money in the bank like you're going to be here forever. Hey, I'm all about savings and being careful and taking care of things and providing for my family. I am. But sometimes when we get to heaven, we're going to have to answer about the way God, we use the blessings that God gave us. God gave us. Yeah. Just being honest. Just being honest. And for a church of liberty size, Pastor Matt ain't here so I can say this, for I compare liberties giving compared to churches of similar size. It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. It's not because God's people don't have money. It's because people have wrong values about that money. And if that's convicting to you, I don't mean it to be because I really don't know anybody's social status and I don't see what you give. All I see is the total. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to know. But I want you to understand this. You seek first the kingdom of God, and you give. He'll give back to you. I proved it over and over and over and over again in my life. God is a giving God. But if you become a dam instead of a river, instead of being a channel, you hoard it up to yourself to just become a swamp, you'll find God stops giving to you. God stops giving, giving. And if you got it, give it. Give it to the kingdom of God. Give it to people in need. Give it to them. God will bless you for it. And that spiritual declension leads to economic declension and vice versa. Spiritual revival leads to an economic revival. And what the world needs is not a war on poverty. It needs a world sin to correct the things that produce the poverty. But in the meantime, give. Give to people who are in need. Show them the love of Jesus by giving of the things that God has given you. And if God has blessed you abundantly, then give abundantly. Become a channel. Become a channel. Now, for those of you who do give at Liberty, and like I said, I don't know who you are. Thank you so much. I'm not fussing at you. you just between you and God. But if God convicts your heart about it, give. And if you don't want to give to Liberty, give to the kingdom of God somewhere. Invest in eternity. That's what really matters. Eternity itself. All right, last one, number six. The book of Judges teaches me that God says to Satan this far <laughs> and no farther, no farther. Over and over as you read the book of Judges, you'll find that the children of Israel were oppressed by the heathen and it seemed like they were just about to be overrun and God stopped it and delivered them so that they survived the book of Judges and go on to reach the zenith militarily under David and economically under Solomon. Spiritually under Joshua, but economically under Solomon and militarily under David. And God does these things because he limits 
the power of Satan. This far and no farther. What's the greatest biblical example of that? Job, of course. You know the story. Satan comes to God. God says, have you seen my servant Job? Not sure he could say that about any of us, but he says, have you seen my servant Job? He's a righteous man. Satan says, of course he's righteous. Look at all the stuff you've given him. Let me take away his stuff. He'll curse you. God said, okay, you can't touch him, but you can touch his stuff. And so Satan took it all away in one day. Killed 10 of his kids. Took away all of his financial wealth. He sat there. Lord giveth, Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan comes to God. God, God said, have you seen my servant Job? He didn't curse me. Satan said, he will if you let me touch his body because a man will do anything to save his own skin. God said, okay, but you can't kill him. And so Satan got as close as he can. And the next time we find Job, he's sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping the boils that have covered his body with a piece of pottery as his friends stare at him in amazement for seven days before they ever say anything to him. And when it's all said and done, God rebukes Satan and he rewards Job again. And I'm just going to remind you, if you'll think back with me over your own life, of how many times God limited the consequences of your stupidity and you're still around because God did that. How many times he limited Satan's attempt to wreck your life? He didn't let it happen. He limited it. As we read the book of Judges, we'll see the intervals of oppression where God tempered his judgment and did not allow Satan to do all that he wanted him to do. And I, I found this to be true in your, my life, and maybe you can think about it and find it true in your own life. When you are facing difficult outward oppression, from people or circumstances, I find there is limited inward temptation. I find a strength inside because the outward oppression. And then when it's easy going outwardly, I find great inward temptation. Is that true? Is that true for you? I think it's this. I think this is the reason why. It's because God limits Satan. Because could I take outward oppression and inward oppression to that. The Bible says that he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities and he will not allow us to be tempted above that we are able. We'll also in the temptation make a way to escape. It's because God limits what Satan can do. God says this far and no farther. And so the reason why you're here and I'm here is not because we haven't been stupid. It's not because we haven't done right. It's because God has said, I'm not going to allow the full consequences of that dumb decision that you just made to affect your life. Psalm 103 puts it like this, that he has not dealt with us after our iniquities. In other words, you don't always reap what you sow. I know the Bible says you reap what you sow, but God does not always give us the full harvest of what we've sown. He tempers the harvest in mercy and his kindness and graciousness to us. He hinders us from experiencing all that we should experience. And some of us have experienced wonderful things in our life that we have no right to experience, no reason to be proud of, nothing. Some of our kids have turned out right in spite of us, in spite of us. Sometimes God has blessed our businesses in spite of our dumbness. <laughs> he has. In spite of us, 
That's because God limits these things. And I want to turn our hearts back in gratitude to him as we just thank him for the fact that his victory swallows up our defeat. And so please get it. The lesson for tonight is this, that the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men, that he looks for weak and despised things. He looks for imperfect things. And when he finds those imperfect things, he takes them and makes them into vessels worthy of his use, and he brings honor and glory to himself so that when the whole endeavor is finished, people don't stand back and say, look at that servant. They look up to heaven and say, look at that God, that he would take a man like that, that he would use a woman like that, and he would accomplish such a great thing through that. That's what our God does. When we get to heaven, why would we lay our crowns at Jesus' feet? Because every one of us will realize, I don't deserve this. This doesn't belong to me. All that I have, you gave me, and I just put it back at your feet. Thank you, Jesus, for these things. That's what he desires to do for us. Bring us to that point of humility. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're going through. But as we finish up tonight, this will remind you. You have not the weakness of God on your behalf. You have the strength of God on your behalf. And he wants to take your brokenness, your defeat, all of your physical handicaps, your moral handicaps, your social handicaps, and he wants to use them to accomplish things so that people stand back and marvel not at you, but at a God who takes the weak things, the despised things, the broken things, and he uses them for his honor and his glory. That's what I want you to do. And so the book of Judges reminds us again, don't despair. Don't despair. God sees you where you are, and he works with you where you are to bring you to where you need to be. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and love to we, your people. Father, we can't understand why you would smile on us that we would know your grace and love as we have known it. God, I ask that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude instead of complaining. That you'd fill our lives with generosity instead of selfishness. That you would fill our lives with humility instead of pride. And that you would take our weaknesses, our brokenness, our foolishness, and you would swallow it up in your victory. And then we would rest in the confidence, not of our natural ability, our social standing, our economic abundance, but our confidence would rest in the God whose weakness is stronger than men. And then we would go forward in our Christian life, thanking you for the valleys and the difficulty and the oppression that you bring in our life because it drives us to the side of our God who's well able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or thank. We praise you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening. I know there's a 5,000 things you could be doing, but it means so much to me that you'd sit there and listen to me. And I hope that God has encouraged your heart. Now, here's what you can do for me. If God helps you in any way, like it. I see those likes. Thank you. Share it with somebody. Share it with somebody. And Click share on the page so other people can know about what's going on and God can bless their heart too. Hey, if it's a good thing, regardless of who gives it, if it's a good blessing, spread it around because we're all needing some hope and encouragement in these days. All right? Hope to see you on Sunday. Remember, 9 and 11, preaching through the Gospel of John chapter 11 on hashtag the love of God. 
And last time we talked about the behavior of love and sometimes love does not respond like we think it does. And this next time we're coming together, we're gonna to talk about love's purposes and the things that love wants to do. I can't preach it right now. If I get started on it, I'll preach it and I don't have nothing to say on Sunday. So come on Sunday and, uh, and, and encourage us and pray for Brother Dusty as he preaches. Don't take that. It'll be a light thing. I do appreciate your prayers. We're going to pray for Pastor Matt. He's on vacation. Leave him alone. Let him have a good time. Let him plan for the rest of the year so that he gets back. We'll be ready to roll into the fall, catch up some things that we've lost with the coronavirus. God will give us wisdom and all those things. All right. Love you guys. Thank you. Have a good night.